Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the AllInGospel.com website. in 2 Kings chapter 9 tonight, but go back one page to chapter 8. Um, I promised that we'd pick up where we left off at verse 28 at the end of the chapter, as it leads into this chapter fairly well. Uh, verse 28, chapter 8 says, Now he went with Joram the son of Ahab to war against Hazael, the king of Syria at Ramoth-Gilead, and the Syrians wounded Joram. This is important as we pick up with Jehu that he's a king that's recovering from wounds, and that's where this kind of fits with the teaching tonight. Then King Joram went back to Jezreel to recover from the wounds which the Syrians had inflicted on him at Ramah, and when he fought against Hazael, the king of Syria. And as Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to see Joram, the son of Ahab, in Jezreel because he was sick. So the northern kingdom has fallen into idolatry for a long time, and uh, and, and the southern kingdom has been buddying up to them, and they've even done an intermarriage. And what happened isn't that the northern kingdom got better, it's that the southern kingdom started to get corrupted with idolatry too. And we say idolatry, and it feels like a really sanitized term. We know it's a bad thing, but we don't really, we've, we live in a nation, thankfully, where we don't have the kind of idolatry that was happening in the ancient world with human sacrifices and nastiness and ickiness. So it's important to recognize that God is watching his chosen people take on the practices of the Canaanites. And if God's going to keep his promise and bring Messiah to the earth, he's not going to let that go all the way into destroying the traditions of Jehovah and Judaism. He won't let that happen. So what we and, and that's an important context as we get into chapter 9 tonight because he's going to raise up and he promised that he would raise up that that the Syrians would take out some of this idol worship, but then whoever they didn't get, Jehu would get. So that's been prophesied. So now Jehu shows up on the scene, on the scene as we get into chapter 9, which starts with, And Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Get yourself ready, take this flask of oil in your hand, and go to Ramoth-Gilead. Now when you arrive at that place, look for Jehu the son of Jehoshaphat, not the same Jehoshaphat as the southern king, the son of Nimshi, and go in and make him rise from among his associates, take him into an inner room, and then take the flask of oil, pour it on his head, and say, thus says the Lord, I've anointed you king over Israel, and then open the door and flee and don't delay. All of this makes sense in, in, in the context of what's going on here. So the context is Elijah was being chased by Jezebel. You remember this back in 1 Kings chapter 19? Jezebel was actively killing the priests of Judaism. She was trying to erase the religion from the planet. So God set it up, gave them the rules. We saw that through the Torah. And her hope was that nobody would be left to the point where Elijah thought he was the only one left. That, that basically worship of Jehovah had ended on the planet Earth. And God assured him, nope, I got 7,000 people that haven't bowed their knees. So he had, but he had to be reassured. So God says to Elijah back in that chapter to anoint Hazel, the king of the Syrians, which 
He's, that has now happened. He also told him to anoint Jehu, and then Nimshi uh, is Jehu, the, the grandson of Nimshi. And Elisha has always had this happen. So that anointing, we can assume it happened back with Elijah, but we don't know that. The Bible doesn't say either way. So you can read this one of two ways. He was anointed earlier on, but then there's another anointing that's happening in this chapter, which would be God promised it a long time ago, but now we're getting really close to the time and he's going to bring another assurance. That's one way to read it. The other way to read it is that Elijah didn't get it done. And he left that, those duties to Elisha, his predecessor, or his, what do you call it? His, the person who would take over after him. Successor. That's a successful help from the audience. Um, so that's where we're at. So there's a contrasting set of things here. Um, and we have, um, God always saving his own as kind of a principle and God's going to judge his own people too. And what's happening with the Northern kingdom is he's bringing Jehu to judge. So we have this contrast with Elijah as the ministry of, if, if Elijah is the ministry of John the Baptist and Elisha is a reflection of the ministry of Jesus, what's coming at the end of these things is the end of days for the northern kingdom, which becomes an image of God's judgment. And it's one of the things in the Old Testament we keep seeing these patterns that are, when Jesus finally shows up, he's fulfilling all of these patterns. And it's why the disciples got really excited and they converted to Christianity as they saw this all coming together. So the corruption of Ahab and Jezebel and now their daughter Athaliah who married into the southern kingdom, that corruption of worshiping Baal has be, is utterly starting to corrupt the southern kingdom to the point where they're seeing each other as buddies and they're making aggressive attacks on God's people. And so you have these two influences of the 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 Jewish kings coming from, you know, Jezebel's not Jewish. She came from outside of Judaism. So the tradition is this, this younger person that Elisha calls to him in verse 1, he called one of the sons of the prophet. If you look in Jewish traditional texts, they believe that this is Jonah that gets called up, but it's Jonah as a young boy, the son of Amittai. It fits with 2 Kings 14.25, if you want to glance forward to chapter 14, where Jonah is one of the, the right-hand people that Elisha has been raising up. So he's training in these prophets, some of these prophets we've heard of. Um, and I would. this is a good time to note, too, that we have also seen during this period where the northern kingdom is falling, uh, this is also a period where the prophets are starting to emerge. So this little community, the sons of the prophets, as the kings fail, they're starting to write books. And so two of those books are, if I can find it, or we'll just get to it later in the talk. Yeah, we'll do that. I think it was Hosea and Amos, but we'll see if I got my trivia right later on. So they're getting warnings because God's raising up these prophets, Jonah being one of these prophets. The other piece is if the Jewish tradition's right, and this is Jonah in these first verses, um, it explains why Jonah really didn't want to go to Nineveh, is because he saw what these Syrians were doing, and they were doing horrible things to the Israelites, it, because there were decades of war between the two nations. So there's a deep kind of uh, hostility towards Syria that's emerging for good reason. Um, so this is the dynasty of Ahab going down to Joram, uh, or Jehoram, uh, Archaeologically, Shalamanser III in 1841 BC names these events. So these are all talked about in Assyrian records too, if you care to go read Assyrian records. I did not this week. 
Most weeks I do, and I can bring you quotes. But this week, I spared myself. Ramoth Gilead is a capital of the region that has about 60 cities in it. It's a key strategic battlefront with Syria. It is where the two and a half tribes settled on the east side of the Jordan that at this point have been overrun by the Assyrians. So the nation has been shrinking as God has been warning the nation to return from idolatry. Uh, Ahab, get, or, uh, Ahab is wounded here back in 1 Kings 22, and now Joram's wounded in the exact same spot, um, and here we are in, in chapter 9. So verse 4, the young man, maybe Jonah, maybe just a young man, uh, nameless at this point, the servant of the prophet went to Ramoth Gilead. When he arrived, there were the captains of the army sitting, and he said, I have a message for you, commander. And Jehu said, for which one of us? And he said, for you, commander. And then he arose, went into the house, and he poured the oil on his head and said to him, I laugh because like, imagine, so, but some kid walks in and says, I have a message for you. And he says, oh, okay. And no, I got to tell you in secret. You go in in secret, and he just dumps a thing of oil on your head. And that would be an odd, like for a commander to have some kid do that, you'd be like, wow, that was interesting. So he dumps oil on his head and he says to him, thus says the Lord God of Israel, I've anointed you king over the, over the people of the Lord over Israel. So Jehu gets anointed. This has to be for these commanders. This is an old war at this point. And nations get sick of war. And as when wars go on and on and on, there is a tax on the people. There is, it's, a, it's an exhausting situation. And Israel's not been getting the upper hand in this battle. So these are battle-hardened generals that are probably tired of war. So you get this, and they're probably sitting around, and Jehu's got his opinion for the other commanders, but all these commanders serve the king. So they're not quite ready to try to change direction. So maybe they were even discussing how to get out of this war, how to change the, the tempo of the war. The privacy allows Jehu time, and God gives him discretion on how to go forward because the rest of the generals don't see this anointing. It happens in private. And so there's no alarm that gets set. Um, he doesn't know who's going to be on his side and who isn't when out in that other room. Um, so and he gets pulled aside to do this. So thus says the Lord God of Israel. Um, it's interesting that even though the people have left the Lord God of Israel, the Lord God of Israel hasn't left the people. And that he's more concerned about the people at this point than the house of Omri, right? The, these Ahab and Jehoram and the Lord wants the people to know that he's God and he still loves these people. So that's a tough situation. So it says, you shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, that I may avenge the blood of my servants, the people, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish. I will cut off Ahab from all the males in Israel, both bond and free. So I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah. The dogs shall eat Jezebel on the plot of ground at Jezreel, and there shall be none to bury her. And he opened the door and fled. You run because the sons of prophets have been under persecution for years since Elijah. And so when you go up and say to one of the army generals what's going to happen, that army general probably has orders to take the sons of the prophets and kill them. Orders that come directly from Jezebel, verse 5. So the, the exertion of power and leadership from Jezebel here overshadows Ahab, yet, and I think this is interesting, Ahab's held accountable for this behavior. So even though they're a married couple, it seems that Jezebel's the one that really has this deep felt hatred towards the people of God. 
So if this is all going to turn out to be true, as we're going to see in the next chapter and two chapters, God is going to use Jehu to bring judgment on the people. The blood here, there is this idea that the blood of all the servants of the Lord, when somebody's murdered according to the law, the thing that answers that murder for justice is another life. So that, that idea of the Old Testament law being if somebody murders someone, the consequence is that they just forfeited their own life. So in murdering the sons of the prophet and persecuting the people of God, there's, there needs to be exacted an execution or a civil execution of justice. In other words, under the law, this isn't sending Jehu out to be a bloody murderer. This is Jehu getting sent out to, to bring justice on the people that are responsible for the murder of the prophets at the hand of Jezebel. It says, I will cut off all the males in Israel. Uh, this has been sanitized a bit in the New King James and I don't know what your Bibles say on this passage. Uh, it's an extremely crude phrase to define men. It is, and, and the literal translation is, I will cut off those that piss against the wall. So, just that idea that, that anyone who pees upright would be the men in the household of Ahab. It's not a flattering way to talk about men. It's not dignified. If you're Matt Walsh and you ask the question, what is a woman or what is a man? The biblical answer is a man, at least, is someone who pees against the wall. And that's, it's, it's kind of a blunt description. And again, I'd, I'd be interested to see with the different translations how that comes out. Um, and then putting cut off in front of that phrase, um, I will cut off all those that pee against the wall. It sounds even more brutal. Like the Lord's going to take care of the house, which has something to do with the ability to procreate and make children. So this, and when it says it's going to be cut off like um, Jeroboam and, the, and Baasha, two previous kings where all of their children were killed, so they could no longer make children that had a claim to the throne. They will have no part of Israel's history. So Jehu, at least in his first year of being king, seems to take this call from God seriously. He has a 28-year reign. We know nothing about the other 27 years. But these first few months, at least, He's doing the Lord's work. Um, verse 10, the dog shall eat Jezebel on the plot of ground at Jezreel is a little bit just, I think, evidence that when God speaks this word, it comes true. God's bringing judgment that fits the crime. And this field um, in Jezreel, this plot of ground that's being referenced in 10, is the vineyard, remember, that Ahab wanted and then he pouted like a little child because he couldn't get it. And then Jezebel comes in and says, well, I'll get it for you. And she murders the guy, and then they take his land and likely kill his entire family. So the justice that's coming and the fact that that plot of land is part of this whole equation, um, God is making a judgment and passing judgment here. So, and then he flees, which is a good idea. The other two prophets were Amos and Hosea. Did I get those two right? So Amos and Hosea, and now this... Elisha and this young other prophet that comes in, this nameless prophet that comes in and talks to Jehu, they're getting multiple people that bring war written warnings to the nation of Israel that they need to turn from their sin. And God's given them time to react to that, and at this point, time's up. So we have a lot of killing tonight. Verse 11, then Jehu came out of the servants of his master. One of them said, is all well? Why'd this madman come to you? This idea this madman came to you, says that publicly speaking, at least, everybody's talking negatively against the people of God. And there's a little bit, a little tone of mockery there. And then he says to him, oh, you know the man and his babble. You know how these guys just talk. So Jehu plays it tough, but then they push. And I like this. And they said, 
That's a lie. Tell us now, he said, and thus thus and thus he spoke to me, saying, thus and thus says the Lord, I've anointed you king over Israel. Jehu leaves a ton out because he's just not going to share. He gets to have discernment over what he shares was said in that room. But he walks out of the room with a head full of oil. So it's obvious something happened in that room. And at the same time that they're using terms like madman and babble, in verse 12, it's like the tone shifts. They're like, no, 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 what did he say? Tell us. There's still a degree of respect. Even though they're mocking the people of God, there's still a regard for the people of God. And you can see that impact where they're like, we'd really like to know what to say. He tells them, I've anointed you king over the Israel. And then look at how quickly they shift in verse 13. Then each man hastened to take his garment. They hastened to do it. They did it quickly. They hastened to take his garment and put it under him on top of the steps. And they blew trumpets and said, Jehu is the king. Putting the garment on the ground is a way to say, I'm underneath you now. These generals are so sick of meaningless war that they're just excited to have a change of leadership. And when this kid comes in, dumps oil on the head, that was all that was needed to start a rebellion against the house of Joram, which says how weak of a leader he was. And it says how much control Jezebel has that probably isn't for the benefit of the people of Israel. So the people are really willing to turn on this dynasty. Then G, and then, so then they yell, Jehu is king. It looks almost like it happens so fast that it's almost like the narrative. It's like, how quickly did these guys change gears? And they're changing gears, I think, in part because they really want this dynasty gone. Bad leadership is hard on everybody. And at some point, you're like, no, it's time to move these people out of office. God's word comes true, even when it looks like it's impossible. It happens quickly. The you that gets used here. Um, you know the man and his babble. There's an emphatic use of that word in verse 11. So it's almost like Jehu goes in, talks to the prophet, and then they come out and say, so what did he say to you? And he laughs and he says, you know the man and his babble. The emphasis in that sentence is on the word you. It's almost like Jehu thinks they're playing a prank on him. Well, you guys set this all up. You know what he said to me. And he's not really given into that... um, you know, that sort of thing. But when they push him a little bit, Jehu realizes, oh, you guys didn't set this guy up. This is real. And that might explain the quick turn and that they see this. Again and again and again, we see that when God says something's going to happen, he says it even though it doesn't look that way. And the people of God listen even when it doesn't look that way. So when God says a flood is coming and it doesn't look like there's a, they've never even heard of rain before, the people of God get ready and start building an ark. When God says plagues are coming, the people of God get ready for plagues. When God says, you know, that there's going to be a new kingdom that over that overshadows Rome, get ready for Rome to fall. Um, it just keeps happening again and again. The godlessness gets judged, even though there's a warning that comes before it gets judged. Jehu's then coming and he downplays it, but they know that this young kid was actually speaking for God and they take it seriously and they act on it. So the rebellion begins. Verse 14, Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. Now Joram had been defending Ramoth Gilead, he and all Israel, against Hazael, the king of Syria. But King Joram had returned to Jezreel to recover from the wounds which the Syrians had inflicted on him when he fought with the king, Hazael, the king of Syria, which we just got at the end of chapter 8. And Jehu said, if you're so minded, let no one leave or escape from the city to go and tell it in Jezreel. Let's keep this secret for now. 
so they don't know what's coming. In other words, Jehu is kind of crafty, and he's using some strategy, which makes sense for a commander of armies. So Jehu rode in a chariot and went to Jezreel, for Joram was laid up there. And Ahaziah, the king of Judah, had come down to see Joram. It's like they're buddies now. They just hang out with each other and play some Nintendo. And Verse 17, now a watchman stood at the tower of Jezreel, and he saw the company of Jehu as he came and said, I see a company of men. And Joram said, get a horseman and send him to meet him there and say, is it peace? So they don't have cell phone communications between the battlefront and where they're nursing back to health. So they have to send somebody out to understand what's going on. It's interesting, I think, that Joram knows two things as he's laying there injured. He knows that he's not honoring God in his leadership. He knows what he's supposed to do as king, and he knows he's not doing it. And second, he knows he's a weak king, which is why he has to send somebody out with a question, is it peace? And maybe the question there is, is there now peace on the battlefield? Did we win the battle with Syria? But why does he have this company of people coming back to where he's at? He can see that they're not Syrian, so he knows they're Israelites. Maybe they're running from the battle. So the question, is it peace, is something that shows how disconnected he is from what's actually going on with the people of God. Verse 18. So the horseman went to meet him, and he said, Thus says the king, is it peace? And Jehu said, What have you to do with peace? Turn around and follow me. So the watchman reported, saying the messenger went with them, but is not coming back. And then he sent out a second horseman who came to them and said, Thus says the king, is it peace? And Jehu answered, What, what have you to do with peace? Turn around and follow me. This is a really, I, I think, a really interesting passage. As we've seen a lot of mirrorings into Jesus' ministry and what's going on with Jehu here, it's a, it, well, first of all, Jehu's name is very similar to Jehovah. I, I'm guessing that's obvious to folks. But it doesn't mean they're the same thing. But in these stories, it's interesting because he doesn't come to bring peace. And he uses language that's kind of an odd way to communicate with people. Is it peace? Like, I don't ask people that when they show up at my house. Hey, somebody's coming up the driveway. Grant, run out there and ask them, is it peace? Like, we just, nobody docks like that. And I don't think they did during this time either. But something drove them to communicate this way. So Jehu creates a crusade-like image in this early rule, and he's going to be purging evil from the land. And so you get this image that God's sending his agent to clear out the nasties. And in doing that, the nasties aren't there for peace. So when he says, is it peace? The person says, what do you have to do with peace? Almost like, what business is it of yours? Like, I'm here to do what I'm here to do. It's none of your business. And then the interesting thing that he says to the messengers, turn around and follow me. The word for turn around is the same word that we use for repent. Change your direction. You're serving an evil king. Stop it and follow me. And you get this kind of sense of zeal from Jehovah that's engaging and irresistible for people. So even the servants, the immediate servants of the king who he's sending out as messenger people, they just immediately decide to follow Jehu. It feels kind of similar to when Jesus called the disciples, doesn't it? And the disciples have to ask that question, like, are we trying to make peace with the Pharisees or why do you keep picking fights with them? And Jesus is kind of like, I'm not here to make peace with these people, specifically Matthew 10. Don't think that I came to bring peace on earth, which is odd after we just got done with the Christmas season, right? Don't think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. 
For I have come to set man against his father and daughter against her mother and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. The command is the same that Jesus gave to the disciples. Turn and follow me. And Jehu is giving us an image of that in the Old Testament. Then verse 20. So the watchman reported saying, he went up to them and is not coming back. And the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. First of all, very few people on the earth can be told, like you can notice who they are by how they drive. Like Danny's one of them, you know. I, I don't know, Paul sometimes scares me with his driving. But you, there are some people on the planet where their driving is like noticeable from a distance. These people are nuts and they drive that way. Grant wanted me to mention him. Obviously, Jehu drives a chariot like a crazy man. From a distance, you can see that's there's only one guy that drives a chariot like that. So this would be, he's probably really good at it. It gives us a sense that Jehu is intense. He, that's why he's significant on a battlefield is that he doesn't you can't quite predict what he's doing. The word furiously there implies an unpredictableness to how he drives, which would be devastating on a battlefield. You can't predict what he's going to do. So he's working those horses up to a froth to drive in such a way. And he's driving, it's, it's almost you get the sense that he's just kind of out driving around out in the field. So as he is approaching from a distance, they keep sending out people who join his ranks. And this group gets a little bigger with each one. Verse 21, then Joram said, make ready. So at this point, Joram knows, like, this, is, this guy's coming to fight. And his chariot was made ready, and then Joram the king of Israel and Ahaziah king of Judah went out, each in his chariot. Now we know that Ahaziah is not just there to be his buddy, he's actually going to go to battle with him. So the southern kingdom at this point is siding with the idol worshippers. And they went out to meet Jehu <clears throat> and met him on the property of Naboth the Jezreelite. Now it happened when Joram saw Jehu that he said, is it peace, Jehu? So now he's asking himself, don't miss the Naboth field. 1 Kings 21, that's the stolen land. God still calls it Naboth's land. I think that's great. Even though Ahab stole it, God still sees it as Naboth's property And in verse 21. So he, he goes up and, and he drives out there. What are you doing, Jehu? Are we, is it peace? And he answered, and I like this, what peace as long as the harlotries of your mother Jezebel and her witchcraft are so many? That's not friendly words. But they're true. Jehu never offers him a chance to turn and follow because he's not here to gain a convert of this person. He's here to end this person. Then Joram turned around and fled. That's not, you know, for a king to just chicken out like that, he didn't even try to fight. This is like wormwood, you know? It's like we're not here to make buddies. And so then Joram turned around and fled and, he, and, and said to Ahaziah, treachery, Ahaziah. Like, he, it's treachery. They're against me. And now Jehu drew his bow with full strength um, and shot Jeroboam between his arms and the arrow came out at his heart and he sank down in his chariot. A moving target's a tough shot at any right. Jehu was an expert with his bow. If he could make that shot, and he didn't just flank him. He hit him right between the blades, hit him right in the heart. Then Jehu, and he sat down in his chariot, which means he immediately fell. So it wasn't an injury. It was a death shot. So critical hit. Then Jehu said to Bidkar, his captain, pick him up and throw him into the tract of field of Naboth to Jezreelite. He's going to get thrown on the land he stole and murdered for. For remember when you and I were riding together behind Ahab, his father, that the Lord laid this burden on him. 
Remember Ahab goes down to the land and Elijah's there to meet him and gives a prophecy that this is the end of you. Surely I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, says the Lord, and I will repay you in this plot, says the Lord. Now therefore take and throw him on the plot of ground according to the word of the Lord. So Jehu is keenly aware of what the prophets are saying. He respects what they're saying. And at this point in his kingship, he's trying to do what God's asked him to do, which is to bring some judgment. So we learn if we learn nothing else from the Old Testament, as we've been going through Kings, we learn that God keeps his word. And when he gives it, there might be a delay between when he gives it and when he executes it. And that delay is an act of mercy. Like, this is time for you to repent if you want to, and they don't, and then God keeps his promises. Unfailingly keeps his promises. According to the word of the Lord, that response by Jehu says that he's keenly aware that he's doing what God's asked him to do. So then he's going to continue, and we will continue to purge northern Israel of these folks. But when Ahaziah, the king of Judah, saw this, he fled by the road of Beth-Hagan. So Jehu pursued him and said, shoot him also in his chariot. And they shot him at the ascent of Gur, which is by Ibliam. Then he fled to Megiddo and died there. And his servants, and don't miss, Megiddo is short for what Revelation calls Armageddon. There's going to be a battle when God comes to clean house. And none of the kings of this earth will be left standing when God does that. At this point, he's just dealing with Israel, and both the kings of Israel just got killed on the same day. So the righteous judgment hand of God comes and comes swiftly and comes certainly at this point. So Megiddo becomes the final place where that happens. And the servants carried him in the chariot to Jerusalem and buried him in his tomb with his fathers in the city of David. In the 11th year of Joram, the son of Ahab, Ahaziah had become king over Judah. So you get the end of two kings in one sentence. Why is Ahaziah getting killed? In part because, and I think we should note this, not only is he buddying up with Joram, but there is also a point at which he has um, started the idol worship in southern Judah, which we're going to see when we get to Chronicles in a little more detail. So now when Jehu, and he's related, by the way, because they intermarried, right? So he's actually killing off the entire dynasty, and Ahaziah is part of that dynasty, at least by half. Now when Jehu had come to Jezreel, Jezebel heard about it, and she put paint on her eyes. That's her reaction when she finds out that there's a rebellion in the land as she gets decorated. She puts paint on her eyes. We would call that eye shadow. Um, The way they point this out, though, in verse 30 is I think it's more than just trying to look nice eye shadow. I think this is priestess of Baal kind of eye makeup and decoration. Think Halloween instead of going to a ball. So I don't know what it means to paint your eyes, but I think it has something to do with darker, noticeable colors. So she's trying to put on an image of power, of fear, of force. And she paints her eyes and adorns her head. Again, a lot of the ancient cults and and pagan religions had very ornate robes for the high priests and priestesses. So she's gearing up for all this sort of thing. Not in armor and weapons, but in spiritual gear. She adorns her head and looked through a window, presenting herself as a queen, as superior, as in control. And then verse 31, as Jehu entered the gate and said, is it peace, Zimri, murder of your master? She calls him names. Why is Zimri a bad name? 
it shows that she knows her history too. She calls him Zimri. Back in 1 Kings 16, Zimri's the one that brought judgment to the house of Baasha. So she's calling Jehu Zimri because he was a rebel and the people that finally ended that rebellion was the house of Ahab or Omri. So she's basically saying, we're going to end you just like we ended that other Zimri rebel. So watch out. And Zimri then was killed by this group of people. And he looked up at the window and said, who's on my side? Who? And so two or three eunuchs looked out at him. <laughs> like just these couple little eyeballs peek out of other windows. We're with you. They hate these people. They're horrible, evil people bringing judgment and hurting the people of God. It's icky what's going on. So Jehu knows, like, I just need to find out who's there. I, to me, this is a huge image of the after battle of Solomon, where he's all dressed up and acting like he's still in control on top of his tower, and he doesn't, like, the people, the good people arrive after the victory's been won, and they don't have to do anything about it. At least in the movies, they have Wormtongue kill Soriman. So they don't have to kill him for him. It's a really, I think Tolkien uses these images as he writes. And then he said, throw her down. So they threw her down. And imagine her feeling, because she's thinking she's all that. And then her servants come in and start grabbing her. And she's like, let me go, let me go. It's a great movie scene, right? And they're just like, we're, we're done with you. And they pick her up and they throw her out a window. And it's a high window. This is extremely violent. And Jehu's just, Jehu doesn't even have to get out his sword. These people are that tired of Jezebel's evil. Then he said, throw her down. So they threw her down. And some of her blood splattered on the wall and on the horses. And he trampled her underfoot. This is super graphic for a reason. She gets what she had coming to her. She did this to the sons of the prophets. She killed hundreds of people that were serving God in God's name. And her death is then a demonstration. People see it. People know it. This is gross. For a body to splatter blood, she has to drop at least three to four stories. Don't ask me how people figure these things out. But if you drop from a story or two, you just go thunk and maybe die, maybe not. Sometimes you can even bounce from that height. But for the body to actually splatter blood so it hits nearby animals, there, this is she's dropped from a very high height. When, and when he got in, he ate and drank. Like, wow, this is so vivid and gory. And Jehu's just like, good to go. He doesn't feel guilt or war remorse. He's been living for years watching the death and destruction of this family and the fact that this family is getting ended. He has a perfectly clear conscience about it. There's no remorse. There's no regret. He literally goes in and eats and drinks as though this is his house. He takes over. He takes the seat. This is the summer vacation home of Ahab that he's walking in. And the idea of going in and eating and drinking is the idea that it sounds really cold, but it's showing that he's taking ownership of all of these things. And he's got all the generals behind him. A few of the servants are now behind him. And he's got a couple eunuchs that are now especially on his side. He's confident in his calling, and he doesn't have issues with it. When Jesus returns and judges the earth, I don't think any of us are going to be like, ooh, that's too harsh. I think the evils that are going to be done prior to his return will be so graphic that the people of God will be crying out for Jesus to come back. Please come quickly. Like, this is getting, this is getting dangerous. And this idea that Jehu shows up and how many people are just like, praise the Lord, this guy's here to do this. He's not feeling like this is a conflict of conscience. 
So he goes in, he sits down, he has a meal, he gets a dinner. And then he said, go now and see to this accursed woman. The then there implies that a period of time has passed. He doesn't call her Jezebel, he just calls her the cursed woman. Like literally, not worth even using her name. Go find this cursed woman and bury her for she was a king's daughter. We're going to at least respect the position of the office. So they went out to bury her and they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. The rest of her body's gone. Therefore they came back and told him and he said, this is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite, saying on the plot of ground at Jezreel, dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel. So he knows the prophecies well enough to quote them while he's sitting at the dinner table. This is a guy who loves the Lord, at least at the beginning of his kingship. No burial plot, no memorial. We can't go visit the, the tomb of Jezebel because it never existed. Verse 37, the corpse of Jezebel shall be as refuge on the surface of the field the, in the plot at Jezreel, so they shall sit, not say, here lies Jezebel. There will never be a memorial for this woman. She was horrible. This is the word of the, the Lord. I, there's this interesting thing. We don't really see much of Jezebel mentioned throughout the rest of the Bible. But in Revelation 2, you know how there's the seven churches that get talked about? One of the seven churches is actually called a Jezebel church, implying that there's a portion of the church of Jesus Christ that becomes so corrupt that they actually do evil to the other people of God. So there's this idea that her, her teaching of immorality to her daughter, to other people, trying to lure people away from God, says that at the end of days, there's going to be a portion of the church that actually tries to pull people away from following Jesus into following their plan instead the corruption of Jezebel. So there, there ends that. Um, chapter 10, he continues to clean house. These chapters go well together. Verse 1, now Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria. That's a lot. Kings were given multiple wives since David, and the idea was to produce as many heirs to your throne as possible so that one or two deaths wouldn't end your dynasty. So 70 sons is a pretty secure dynasty from the perspective of the flesh. From the, from the perspective of God, this is not hard. Look at how Jehu takes care of it. Jehu wrote and sent letters to Samaria. Remember, he's at the summer home, so the people in the capital don't know what's been happening out in the field. They don't know that the king is dead. They don't know that Jezebel's dead. Again, there's no mass communication here. So the rulers of the Jezreel to the elders and to those who reared Ahab's sons. So each of these sons, you don't put them all in the same place or they're going to get killed off just like Baasha or um, just like we saw other rebellions where the kids would try to kill off the other kids. So you spread them out throughout the kingdom to all these different homes and you have different like foster parents for each of the kids. So when it, he sends these letters out, to those who reared Ahab's sons, that means Jehu had access and knowledge of where the sons were. He knew where the skeletons were buried. So he was clearly a high-ranking officer in the army. Verse 2, Now as soon as this letter comes to you, since your master's sons are with you, and you have chariots and horses and a fortified city also, and weapons, choose the best qualified of your master's sons, set him on his father's throne, and fight for your master's house. Jehu challenges them to battle. If anybody wants to support their master, send out your best warrior and let's do this because we're going to figure out Israel right now. And again, it feels like the, like, choose this day who you're going to follow. Make a choice. And Jehu, as part of the judgment of God, delivers the opportunity to make a choice to people. In the same way Jesus has said, make a choice. 
pick between who you're going to follow. Verse 4, but they were exceedingly afraid. So we don't want to fight, saying, look, two kings couldn't stand up to him, Jehu, then how can we stand? And he was in charge of the house, and he was in charge of the city, the elders also, and those who reared the sons sent to Jehu, saying, we're your servants, we will do all that you tell us, but we will not make anyone king, do what is good in your sight. So we're not going to challenge you, we're also not going to endorse you. So he's got this kind of weird thing. But we will not make anyone king, but we will not make anyone king, implying that these sons they've been raising, they're not going to try to promote them into the, the heir of the throne. But Jehu's command wasn't to just end the dynasty, it was to end the people that could make a claim. So that idea has to get carried forward. Do what is good in your sight. What do you want us to do to show you that we're loyal to you, Jehu? And if two kings can't stand up to you, we're not going to stand up to you either. So he doesn't have to attack a city. He doesn't have to take storm any gates. He doesn't really have to fight any battles. It's like God set all of this up for Jehu. Even though he's perfectly equipped to be a commander of armies and fight it out on the battlefield, it's interesting that he never has to. God doesn't want those skills to do his work. He actually gets diplomacy and craft is, is how he does the work of God. So he wrote a second letter to them, verse 6 saying, if you're for me and you'll obey my voice, take the heads of the men, your master's sons, and come to me at Jezreel by this time tomorrow morning. All right, if you want to show that you're on my side, chop off their heads, put them in a little baggie, and bring them down, and I'm going to have a pile of 70 heads, and then I'll know that you're with me. So he didn't have to kill Jezebel. He doesn't have to kill all the heirs of um, Joram. He killed Joram and he killed Ahaziah, the rest of Israel takes care of the rest. Now the king's sons, 70 persons, were with the great men of the city who were rear, rearing them. And so it was when the letter came to them that they took the king's sons and slaughtered 70 people and put their heads in baskets and sent them to him at Jezreel. Out of context, this sounds brutal and harsh. In context, we've got generations of people doing exactly that to the Christians, to the believers, to the followers of God. And so when this happens, not Christians, because Christ hasn't shown up yet, but the sons of the prophets, right? So what's happening here is a brutal response because God's about done with Jezebel and what her and her people have been doing to the people of God, and it's going to stop. So he sent them to Jezreel. Then a messenger came and told him they've brought the heads of the king's sons. And he said, lay them in two heaps at the entrance of the gate until morning. This was a common practice to put down rebellions. You show those that got rebelled got killed and they're sitting outside the city. And this gets done for thousands of years of human history. So it was, verse 9, In the morning they went out and stood and said to all the people, You are righteous. Indeed, I conspired against my master and killed him. But who killed these? This is an interesting way for Jehu to unite the nation. Right? Because one thing you could do is say he's, an, he's a, he's a re rebel. Right? He just brutally murdered his king. And what kind of honor is that? But Jehu actually goes out and makes a different argument. I, yes, I did, cons I did kill Joram. I'll, I'll own that. But who killed these 70 people? And who's responsible for that? So I, this is important because under Jewish law, if you're going to return to Jewish law, murderers need to get killed. Executioners are administering justice. There's no crime there. That's bringing balance back. And so when he does this, verse 10, know now that nothing shall fall to the earth of the word of the Lord, which the Lord spoke concerning the house of Ahab. 
for the Lord has done what he spoke by his servant Elijah. I'm just going to tell you, we've just completed what God asked to be done. We've dealt with these people that have been killing the sons of the prophets. So Jehu killed all who remained of the house of Ahab in Jezreel and all his great men and his close acquaintances and his priests, and he left none of them remain, remaining up to verse 11. This is good because he's done all that he's been told, but he's not done. There's still people related to the house of Ahab, the house of Omri, that are in the southern kingdom now because Ahaziah has been busy making kids also. So you get to verse 12. And he arose and departed and went to Samaria. And on the way at Beth Eked of the shepherds, Jehu met with the brothers of Ahaziah, the king of Judah, who said, who are you? So they answered. This is weird. He's driving away from the situation where he just killed all of Joram's kids. And then there's this whole group of people that's coming into the northern kingdom. And they walk. Guess who they meet? They happen to run into Jehu on the road. And then he says, well, who are you guys? And they answered, we're the brothers of Ahaziah. That was the wrong thing to say to the wrong guy at the wrong time and on the wrong day. Or God orchestrated all of this. And Jehu didn't have to go hunting them down. Again, when you're doing the judgment of God, it just seems to be really easy. Like this is all happening so quick. We're the brothers of Ahaziah. We've come down to greet the sons of the kings and the sons of the queen mother. That doesn't help either. Calling Jezebel instead of a harlot and a witch, calling her the queen mother. Who's their alliance with? Well, they just announce it to him. And I'm sure all the people with Jehu just started snickering a little bit because they're like, they just said the wrong thing to this guy. So they announce themselves. They pay homage to Jezebel when they do it. This is a big neon sign for Jehu that these people have been delivered into your hand. And he said, take them alive. So they took them alive and killed them at the well of Beth Echid, 42 men, and he left none of them. I don't understand verse 14. And I'm going to ask afterwards if you guys get this. And I looked around and nobody really commented on it. They just kind of skim over this one. Why would you take them alive just to go kill them over at Beth Echid? Look up Beth Echid. There's nothing. It's not like a significant spot or site. So I don't, Something's like, I don't get what's going on here and why verse 14 is even there. But if you guys have thoughts or if you have commentary in your Bibles, let me know. I'm going to keep going. Verse 15. Now when he would departed from there, he met Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, coming to meet him. Okay, we should know about the Rechabites. The Rechabites were a people that were committed to living the way God said to. And the Rechabites were um, known for being like really intense, we're going to do everything according to God's law kind of people, kind of like us, right? We're just going to live under God's law and be okay with that. So the Rechabites were known in Israel as kind of these holy roller types. And they lived simply, they made vows to commit to the Lord. And he greeted them and he said to them, is your heart right as my heart is towards your heart? This is a different thing than who are you? Jehu knew who the Rechabites were. And he, and he knew who this group was. So he meets him and he says, are you like me? And are we together on this? Are we ready to clean out Israel and get the corruption out of this place? And Jehonadab answered and said, it is. And Jehu said, then if it is, give me your hand. So he gave him his hand and he took him up into his chariot. Remember, that's a symbol of we're equals. We're on the same page. We're doing the same work. And he took him up into the chariot. And then he said, come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. This is our first red flag with Jehu. He needs to be seen. It's not good enough to just do God's work. He wants to be seen doing God's work. 
And so you get this first kind of sense of like arrogance. Maybe the furious driving was your first hint, but I'm going to trust that there's bad drivers that God loves. Right. But there's this thing where he needs to be seen by other people. So he had him ride in his chariot. Verse 17, when he came to Samaria, he killed all who remained of Ahab in Samaria till he had destroyed them according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to Elijah. Third time we've seen that word of the Lord phrase. He's doing what God asked him to do. And in that sense, he's doing it appropriately. And um, again, these, these Rechabites that are there, when Jehu says, I want you to see how zealous I am, he's saying that in response to how zealous the Rechabites were. They're zealous for the Lord. They love the Lord. And he's trying to show them like, hey, I'm the same as you as, and, and that sort of thing. There was an idea. This is what the Rechabites did. If you go to Jeremiah 35, 6, there's a mention of them. And they made vows saying they would drink no wine. They, they vowed off of alcohol, even though the Old Testament allows for alcohol. They just said, we're not going to do it because we want to have our heads straight. And then Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us. So Jonadab becomes Rechab, they're named Rechabites, but Jonadab becomes the person that really expands this movement in Israel. So while the kings are failing, there are people of God that have not bowed their knee to Baal. They've committed themselves to the Lord. So they shall drink no wine, neither, neither you nor your sons forever. It's a multi-generational commitment. Neither shall you build houses. It's not evil to build a house. Just like it's not evil to have a drink. But, it's, it, but they say we're not going to build houses or sow seeds or plant vineyards nor have any, but for all your days you shall dwell in tents. They're just doing it because they want to show the Lord they don't need anything from this world but the Lord. This is a really, it's like the vow of the Nazarite. It's just going above and beyond. There's nothing in the law that says you have to do this, so don't start thinking i got to sell all my possessions. But these are people that said we don't want any possessions because we want to just be the Lord's. And they live that way. That's zeal. You give the Lord more than what he asks for. And that zealousness for the Lord is something that God honors throughout the Bible. So they want to live in the land, and this is still from Jeremiah, they want to live in the land many days and be considered strangers. So that idea that we're strangers in a strange land, we're just sojourners here. And just living that way and holding to that is an image that comes up again in the New Testament. So they rely on the Lord for all, all things, and they happen to run into this Jehu, and he's like, let's be buddies. It could be that Jehu's getting like, he's telling or cueing to the people of God that he's, that he's on the same page as the Rechabites, and he's trying to get some like commit commodity off that. It's why politicians like to be seen with pop stars, right? They want to take some of that popularity for themselves and show association. So they do that. So he brings him up into his chariot. He rides him around. I'm thinking, you know, Jonadab felt a little awkward riding around in a chariot. That's not exactly his thing. So he's probably just holding on for dear life, especially with Zehu's driving, right? So this is probably, you know, the one guy all proud that he's riding around and the other guy just terrified and holding on with things. It would have been an odd sight to see. So they give up these things and, and Jehu's getting rid of the corruption. And so this feels like a really good day for the people of God. Like the northern kingdom's getting cleaned out. That's not so bad. They just won the election and everything feels great. But they're going to find that Jehu's not what they thought he was. He started out really good, but he's not going to end that way. Come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. Now, it's an odd thing. As believers, we always have to watch out, especially when we're doing God's work. Satan's going to find creative ways to get us off the track of what God ordered. God never said to Jehu, go and show people how much zeal you have. 
He told him to go do this other kind of grisly work that he was supposed to do, but he never told him to do this. So as soon as they started taking their own initiative on things, it seems to be a problem that he should have chopped off early on. We were just reading this morning about if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. In this case with with Jehu, like his pride, his anxiousness to be seen by other people is a part of his life he would have been better off to just get rid of. So on paper, this is distasteful. Um, spiritually speaking, this is an, they're, they're giving up filth for purity and they're trying to make the whole nation go the same way. So then they go beyond what the Lord said to do in the next passage. Verse 18, Then Jehu gathered all the people together and said to them, Ahab served Baal a little, Jehu will serve him much. That's a lie. So he's starting to lie, and this isn't going to end well for anybody, I don't think. Verse 19, Now therefore call to me all the prophets of Baal, all his servants, all his priests, let no one be missing, for I have a great sacrifice for Baal, whoever is missing shall not live. If you love Baal, you got to come to this sacrifice, or I'll kill you, because I love Baal a ton. He's lying to everybody. So he does this, it's a, it's a great deception. And Jehu acted deceptively, the Bible writer points that out, and with the intent of destroying the worshipers of Baal. Look at how much zeal I have. I'm not going to just do what God said. I'm going to go beyond what God said to do. And Jehu said, proclaim a solemn assembly for Baal. So they proclaimed it. And then Jehu sent throughout all Israel and all the worshipers of Baal came. So there was not a man left who did not come. So they came into the temple of Baal and the temple of Baal was full from one end to the other. Basically, the people of Baal believe it. Like, why would they doubt Jehu is going to be just as Baal-worshipping as Ahab was? You think Ahab loved Baal? I love Baal even more. And just wait to see what I'm going to do. And he said to one in charge of the wardrobe, bring out the vestments for all the worshipers of Baal. So he brought out the vestments for them. Like, let's clean out the storehouse. And part of this is as he kills these people, he's going to be corrupting all those vestments too. So people can't pick them up later without having a cursed thing in their hands. Then Jehu and Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, went into the temple of Baal and said to the worshipers of Baal, Search and see that no servants of the Lord are here with you, but only the worshipers of Baal. He's bringing everybody into the storehouse, and he's sorting them out one last opportunity. If there's any non-Baal person in here, they can't be in the room. Get them out of there. One last chance to make sure this judgment is going to strike accurately. So they went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. Now Jehu appointed for himself 80 men on the outside and said, If any man, any of the men whom I've brought into your hand escapes, whoever lets him escape, it shall be his life for the life of the other. Don't let one of these guys out of the building. When I start doing what I'm going to do and they're going to try to run, you're going to stop them at the door. Again, I can't believe they haven't made a movie out of this. This is like just drama. So when they see that it happens, it's going to be there. So they willingly come, and I don't think they realize that the wonderful sacrifice to Baal is going to be Baal's own priests. Like, they're the sacrifice. How would you like to show up to a big party and realize that you're the food? You know, and that's what's going on here. When we look at this historically, this was a human sacrifice kind of thing. At some point, you'd think, maybe I'm going to be the sacrifice at some point. But this is a mighty sacrifice to Baal. You can have everybody back that you wanted. 
Now, what happened is, and I'm sure that Jehonadab had some part of this scheme because they're there together, right? So you got the zealot alongside the, the on-fire new king. And it happened as soon as he made an end of the offering of the burnt offerings. That's interesting that they actually do a burnt offering. That Jehu said to the guard and to the captains, go in and kill them, let no one come out. And they killed them with the edge of the sword. And then the guards and the officers threw them out and went into the inner room of the temple of Baal. And they brought the sacred pillars out of the temple of Baal and burned them. And they broke down the sacred pillar of Baal and tore down the temple of Baal and made it a refuge dump in the city. Literally, they used it as a bathroom. If you're going to go potty or you're going to dump your, your chamber pot, you're going to dump your chamber pot on that spot over there. Thus, Jehu destroyed Baal from Israel. This is a huge statement. This particular kind of worship gets eradicated in one move. Then Jehu executes all those that promoted them and got rid of them all. So the temple was built for Baal by Ahab back in 1 Kings 16. It was not supposed to be there. It should be gone. And now it's gone. And it's made into a, a chamber pot. However, Jehu did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam. So up to verse 28, the writer presents it as like, this is a king that's off to the right track. And then in verse 29, the word however is the tough part. However, he didn't really follow through. And the sins of Jeroboam are different than the sins of Ahab. Ahab's off worshiping other religions. Jeroboam was still calling himself Jewish, but not regarding or listening to what was in the Torah. So they called themselves by name the people of God, but in practice, they really didn't care what God had to say at all. They're willing to modify God's word to fit their own understanding and their own cultural pretense. This is dangerous. That's the sin of Jeroboam in the Old Testament, is people that call themselves the children of God, but they do it their own way. Verse 29, however, Jehu did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, the sons of Nebat, who made Israel sin, that is, from the golden calves that were at Bethel and Dan. And the Lord said to Jehu, because you've done well in doing what is right in my sight and have done to the house of Ahab all that was in my heart, your son shall sit on the throne to the fourth generation. God rewards the parts of Jehu's life that were obedient. But, verse 31, Jehu took no heed to the walk and the law of the Lord. He doesn't care what the law says. And I, for me, at least, that's a warning. I should probably care what the law says. I should at least know what it says. He did not heed to walk in the law of the Lord God of Israel with all his heart. It's not just a matter of doing it. It's a matter of doing it and actually appreciating what the Lord offers. David, when he writes about the law, writes that the law is beautiful. It's, it's something that gives him refuge. It's his strength. The law of the Lord is his delight. If we read the law of the Lord and you think that's a good God that wants to govern our lives that way, then you're probably one of God's people. If you read the law of the Lord and you're like, ah, this is too limiting. I want to do these other things. You're, you're, in, a, you're in a dangerous place with your heart. So he doesn't walk in the law of the Lord, and he doesn't do it with all his heart, for he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, who made Israel sin. The leadership that presents a kind of religion that's halfway is leadership that's under condemnation from God. God's told us what he wants. We're supposed to teach what he wants so that we take care of the people that are in our lives. This is what God has said is good and just and holy. So they put away the defiant and open public rejection of Yahweh. They stopped trying to kill Yahweh's priests, but they're still doing religion however they want to. 
And that's a partway thing. And God rewards them for the good stuff. And then we get a little commentary at the end of the chapter. Um, In those days, the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel. And Hazael conquered them in all the territory of Israel. From the Jordan eastward, all the land of Gilead, Gad, Reuben, and Manasseh from Aror, which is by the river Arnon, including Gilead and Bashan. This is significant because it goes all the way back to Joshua. There were two and a half tribes that didn't want to come into the promised land because they liked the land off to the east. It wasn't God's plan, but they wanted to go that way anyways. And in these days, verse 32, the Lord actually starts to trim back the the territory of control that Israel has. They haven't obeyed him and done it his way. They start to lose dominion and control. And these are warning signs as a nation starts to retract in its influence That's a warning sign to the nation throughout the Old Testament. Watch out. You deny me, you deny my name, you do things the way you want to do them, you don't respect me, you're going to start to lose dominion and control. And and in this sense, that's two and a half tribes of the 12 tribes of Israel that just get overrun by the Syrians. And pretty soon it's going to be the whole northern kingdom, but they get this warning sign. You can read that as a tough, stern God, Father in heaven, Or you can read that as a merciful God giving another warning, another warning to the northern kingdom. They've had generations of warnings from God. So in this sense, you get this idea that those scattered, those distant tribes are now gone. They were the first to not obey God fully, and now they're the first that have been destroyed. If you want to read more about the uh, incident where they picked that land, it's in Numbers 32. Then we end the chapter. Now the rest of the acts of Jehu and all that he did... And all his might, aren't they not written in the book of Chronicles and the, of the kings of Israel? Yes, they are. We'll get there soon. So Jehu rested with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria. And then Jehoahaz, the son, his son, reigned in his place. And the period that Jehu reigned over Israel and Samaria was 28 years. Remember that Jehu is blessed by God to the fourth generation. We should expect in a few chapters that that's going to come true. There will be four generations of this family that reign. Um, and we can remember that, I think, 28 years is a pretty healthy long reign in comparison to the other kings of Israel. He gets a pretty, I mean, what he does for the Lord, cleaning out Baal worship, God really does reward him for those things. Last thing about Jehu to kind of pick up and we'll end on this. Note that only the actions of his first year are even noted in the Bible. That means there's 27 years, probably 27 plus, that he did nothing of significance or worth. That's kind of sad. He had a lot of opportunity to really bring back an authentic worship of Yahweh, and he really just never does it. And he starts out with all this zeal, and then he lives an entire life of irrelevance. That's, I think, for me, that's terrifying. Why would I start out strong for the Lord and then fizzle for the rest of my life when I don't think that's what God called Jehu to do? So in that sense, he starts out ferment. Uh, but he stops short of a lifelong commitment. And that's just kind of the end of Jehu, another um, king of Israel that is not the Messiah. So as readers of the Old Testament, we continue to look for the promise of a Messiah that someday will show up and bring Israel back to what God wanted for Israel. And that's it for tonight. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for these stories. We know they're written for our teaching. They're written for our instruction. So, Lord, help us to learn from them. I I pray that for each person in this room, there's something about Jehu that instructs their life, that guides them. Uh, Lord, thank you for the just a week in these chapters for me. Lord, thank you for the way in which 
you can start to understand the certainty of your judgment and that it, it is coming and when it comes, it'll be swift. Uh, and Lord, we want you to come soon. We can see the, the world, we can see our nation, Lord, um, doing both good things and bad things at the same time, that there's a mix of what's going on. But we do know, Lord, that the people of God and the way of Yahweh and what you've written in your word uh, is not always welcomed. Uh, so we pray, Lord, help us to find the people that want to hear your word. Help us to find the sons of the prophets and the daughters of the prophets that are out there, those people that still want to serve you and still want to look to you for their lives. Lord, we know that even when you deal with kings, you also deal with widows. You also deal with Gentiles. You also deal with the, the people with leprosy. Lord, at the same time that you're dealing at the national level, you're, you're dealing with individuals like us. And we just thank you for that. We thank you for pr your protection, your guardianship, the warnings that you give. And Lord, we want to serve you and be just all in for what you have. May we not make the mistake of Jehu, where we get the idols out of our life, but we continue to not do what you've commanded in the word. So Lord, help us to do both. Help us to put away the things of this world, the things that are sinful, and help us to put on the righteousness that you've put before us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.